Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith, and in today's episode, I'm joined by the crime writer Tim Weaver. Tim is the creator of the best selling David Rake Missing Persons series. He's here to tell us about his latest novel in the series, I Am Missing. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Tim's chosen a selection of objects that have influenced and inspired his writing. I'm looking forward to hearing the background and the stories behind his choices. There's a twist in the latest instalment in the David Raker series. Missing persons investigator Raker is left with more questions than answers when he's approached by Richard Kite and asked to take on a case. The catch, the person who is missing, is Richard himself, who washed up bruised and beaten on a beach one day with no memory of who he is or where he came from. This is the eighth David Raker story. Where did the inspiration for this particular novel come from? Well, it's a constant process of re-evaluating the series. You know, when you write a series, I think it is incumbent on you to try and make the books as kind of different as possible, yet still retaining the things that people love about the series and of kind of the reasons they come back. Yeah. So I place great emphasis, actually, at the start of every book on trying to, as much as possible, up the ante or uh, do something very different or whatever it is, you know, at the start of the process, really alongside the initial idea, which is generally a mysterious and unexplained disappearance. I will place, like I say, a great emphasis on trying to reevaluate the series and try and take it somewhere different. And I thought, well, it's the eighth book in the series. It's time that I try to do something not just different but something different with the formula you know because there have been seven books before that and they've all started off with these kind of weird disappearances and I thought what if I tried to tweak that formula a little bit yeah the problem was at the beginning was I didn't really have a clear idea of how I would go about it or what it would even be uh, and then it was really a conversation with um, my old editor uh, before he left Penguin that sparked it off he brought to my attention the real life case of a guy called Benjamin Kyle, who was uh, an American guy who woke up um, in, I think it was August 2004, woke up outside a Burger King in a town in Georgia with absolutely no memory of, of who he was. He was uh, very badly sunburnt. He was um, almost entirely naked. And he had three um, uh, sort of deep depressions in the top of his head where he'd obviously been struck three times. And so he had absolutely no memory of who he was. And I remember... Uh, my editor pointing me towards uh, a Reddit thread, an AMA, you know, and asked me anything where Redditors can kind of come on and ask questions. And they and Benjamin Carl was on there and they were asking him questions and it just brought it home to me what an extraordinary and complex and very emotional, I imagine, and very hard situation he found himself in where he had no memory of his previous life. And obviously as a fiction writer at that point, you're like, well, this is quite interesting. Gold dust. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that was really what sparked it off. And I realised when I read that, that it was the kind of tweak to the formula that I was after. And then it really just became a case of um, how do I turn this into a big uh, full-length novel? Yeah. Well, we've got the audiobook of I Am Missing here, and we're going to hear the opening. The audiobook is read by Joe Coyne and Charlotte Ritchie. I'm happy to talk, I said to him, but maybe you should just tell me who it is you want me to find first. Yes, of course. He held up an apologetic hand but didn't continue. He looked away again instead, searching the shadows for the words he wanted, his face thin and pale, black stubble lining his jaw his eyes oddly colourless. And as he did, something struck me. I've seen him before. I know him from somewhere. Have the two of us met at some point? I called you, he said, because I know you find missing people. That's what you do, and that's 
Well, that's what I need. He stopped, swallowed hard. Someone's missing, and I need you to find them. So who is it that's missing? I was still thrown by the familiarity I felt. As I waited, I tried to wheel back, to figure out where our paths may have crossed, but I couldn't think. If I'd met him, it wasn't on any case. Richard, I said again. Who is it that's missing? It was like he hadn't heard me, his eyes still probing the corners of the church where the light from the windows didn't reach. But then, just as I was about to repeat myself a third time, he turned to face me. I am, he said. I frowned. You're what? I'm the person that's missing. I mentioned that you've brought along a number of objects to the Penguin Studio today, and your first object is a missing persons poster. Let's have a look at this poster. Yeah, well, it's not technically a missing persons poster. Uh, It is actually a a screenshot from the Missing Persons Charity website, and it really just underlines, and this is only a very, very tiny fragment of the front page, it really underlines how many people go missing every year in the UK, about 250,000 people. Uh, go missing every year in the UK. Now, while the vast majority of those people kind of are found very quickly, actually 99% of cases are solved within the first year. 1% of those people will never turn up again. So it's really quite extraordinary that 2,500 people can vanish into thin air every year and not be found. So you can imagine, thinking about writing thrillers, that this was very interesting to me. At the time that I was starting out, um, no one was really covering missing persons cases. And what missing persons cases real-life missing persons cases bring home to you is just how, again, complex and uh, and difficult a lot of these uh, cases are. You know, the reasons people vanish, the reasons they disappear, the reasons they run away from home, all of those things uh, are stories that sometimes end up getting told and sometimes are stories that never get told. And so as a writer, I just found that very interesting, uh, particularly the idea of people vanishing into thin air, especially in the 21st century, when it's actually very, very hard to do that. And those stories that are left untold were the kind of things I'm trying to write about and I'm inspired by in my books. And you produced and presented a podcast called Missing as well. How do they work together? Well, I'd actually written six books before I started the Missing podcast. So uh, by that stage, I'd, I already thought I knew quite a lot about missing people. But I think what the podcast brought home to me was that actually, really, I've only scratched the surface in the books. You know, these cases are, as I said, very, very um, thorny and difficult and sometimes hard to follow. The police do an incredible job of finding the majority of missing people. That should be underlined, really, with very stretched resources. They do mm-hmm. an amazing job. But there are these cases that that never get solved. And those are really the cases that we concentrated on in in Missing, the podcast. And really, we explored how and why uh, people disappear, but also how they stay disappeared and some of the challenges they would potentially face along the way. So it's stuff like, you know, like when you put your card into an ATM, you're immediately on the map or you know, like the way that you use computers or mobile phones, the way that your face is recognised on CCTV cameras. If you're smart enough, I think if you determined enough, you you could potentially disappear, but then it's the case of staying disappeared. And that's when like a, the real emotional side of it comes because you're leaving behind families, potentially people you really love, and having to cut all ties with those people forever is is really, really hard. And I think that's eventually why people don't stay disappeared is because they can't 
completely remove themselves from their previous life. Uh, and that's how they end up a lot of time getting found. So let's hear another extract from the audiobook. In this one, David Raker has started to try and put together the pieces of Richard Kite's life. I moved on in my search, but the only other thing that really grabbed my attention was a Word document. It contained a list of all the things he thought he knew about himself. My name is Richard. I know how to swim. I know how to drive. I spent part of my childhood next to a beach. I remember a TV show where the... But then the list stopped. The memory of the TV show wasn't something he could be certain about, and neither really was his recollection of being at the beach as a kid. He knew how to swim because he'd been in a pool or out in the sea, and he knew how to drive because he'd sat behind the wheel of a car at some point, and, even if he hadn't taken it out on the road, something had clicked. It was reflex, instinct, knowledge, buried deep, that had shuddered to the surface. It was possible the TV show was the same, his recollection of the beach as well, but he couldn't be absolutely certain, because he couldn't prove them. He remembered the beach, but hadn't been able to locate it. He recalled the TV show, but it could just as easily have been a web video, an advert, even a static image in a comic or magazine that his memory had brought to life. Even his name was a feeling, not a proven fact. That was what made memories so dangerous. The mind invented things. As I looked at the list again, rereading the first three lines, I felt profoundly sorry for Richard Kite. In a strange way, his list may have been one of the most distressing things I'd ever read. A short, meagre testament to what his life had become. Nine months after he woke up in a world he didn't recognise. He was a man without an anchor to his history. He was a story that couldn't be finished because his story hadn't even been started. He was five incomplete lines on a page, and maybe not even that much. In the end, the press had been right about something. This was a man that was lost. On to your next object, Tim, which is actually a place. This is Holsands in Devon. So we've got a, a little picture of it, and it looks... Very picturesque, but there's a village that seems to have slipped off the cliff and fallen into this cove. Can you tell us a bit about the significance of Hall Sands to you? Yeah, well, Hall Sands is a fishing village or a former fishing village on the uh, South Devon coast. And as a kid, we used to go there all the time. My mum and dad used to take my sister and I down that way for summer holidays all the time. And back when I was growing up, you could go down there and wander around and it was this uh, fishing village that had been washed away at the beginning of the 20th century uh, in a storm. And it was quite tragic, as you can imagine. Uh, what happened was that they built this village right on the edge of the sea and everything was, I guess, OK for a while until they started creating the uh, harbour at uh, Plymouth and they started dredging the water and taking a lot of the rocks and all that sort of stuff down to Plymouth to kind of build this harbour. And it ended up making Hull Sands very, very susceptible to bad weather. But, of course, back then they didn't really think about it too much. So, anyway, long story short, Hull Sands was swept away in a terrible uh, storm and, and left uh, this kind of ghost village on the edge of the rocks down uh, in South Devon. And, uh, like I say, as a kid, we used to be able to go down there and wander around, and it was very evocative, as you might yeah. imagine, you know, wandering around this forgotten village the roofs had gone from the houses and the windows had obviously been smashed out and the structures were slowly decaying and kind of being taken back by 
nature. And I think it was the first time that I'd ever really been to a place like that. And it really sparked my interest in these kind of, I suppose, what modern people would term urban exploration. Now, as a 10-year-old, 9-year-old, I wasn't exactly an urban explorer. (laughs) But um, since then, I've become very interested in abandoned places. And a lot of people out there will obviously know that there's a grand tradition on the internet and on YouTube and all sorts of places for people to go into these abandoned buildings, sometimes, most of the time illegally, and take photographs and film and all that sort of stuff. And all my books, to a greater or lesser extent, feature locations like that because I felt like, from a very young age, I'm absolutely fascinated by them. And Hall Sands really was the inspiration for that. Yeah, there's lots of different evocations of place in the book, and it's very difficult to talk about them because... We don't want to give too much away about the book. Um, mm. But yeah, there's that idea of, of, of place being a mystery, especially at the start where, you know, one of the only memories that Richard Kite has got is is of a beach. And we don't know where that is. It's, it's definitely a strong part of the book. And it seems like place is very important to you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, place, I play place high, place high <laughs> importance on that sense of, of location. In many of the books, I think the sense of, place and the locations are another character you know and I know that's an easy thing to say like I'm sure most authors say that that about their books but I really do feel that in my books I I, you know like the places that I write about are all inspired by real life places but because I tend to take them off in different directions or I need them to do different things in order to service the plot or whatever it is um I kind of embellish them and give them different names and I spend a lot of time creating the history of these places and making them very, very true to the location of where they are to try and give it this sense of belonging and a belonging not just in the book but perhaps existing in, in real life. And, you know, one of the... Obviously, you know, when people say they enjoy your books and that's that's wonderful, one of the loveliest things, I think, is when people say... Uh, they think that, you know, where is this place that you wrote about? And you say, well, actually, I made it up. And they're like, oh, it just feels so real, you know. And, and I think that sense of history, that sense of giving it a really fully rounded kind of feel is a part of that, you know. So let's dip back into the audiobook of I Am Missing. And yet there was something weird here. The amount of data he was using every month was high. Not ridiculously high, but higher than it should have been. He'd bought no apps from the store, hardly used the phone at all for day-to-day surfing, never used it as a GPS or to check the news or to stream TV shows or movies. And yet... Each month, he burned through about 500 megabytes of data. How was he using that much? It was the equivalent of sending about 17,000 emails, except he didn't email anyone. It was 25 hours on Facebook, but he had no social media accounts in his own name and didn't ever check the ones that were set up to publicise his case. He didn't Google anything didn't use streaming services of any kind and didn't do much more than watch a few YouTube videos and he'd have had to watch 35 or 40 before he got anywhere near 500 megabytes of data. Returning to my laptop, I logged back into his mobile phone account and retraced my steps through to the section of the website dealing with his internet use. There, I found a series of pie charts breaking down each of the eight months. I looked at September... Of the 500 megabytes he'd used, 42 megabytes was web activity, 61 megabytes were emails, and 398 megabytes was apps, 
and yet he didn't ever use or download apps. It made no sense. Either it was an admin error at the network, or there was some kind of a technical issue with the phone. Or it was something much worse than both. Richard Kite was lying to me. That was another extract from I Am Missing there. David Raker, how did you come up with David Raker as a character? Because obviously there's a, there's a backstory to him. Um, how would you sum him up as a protagonist, especially having been through a number of books now, he, he'll have changed as a character? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and changed in ways that I never would have thought about at the start. I'm not a great planner, so... Uh, in fact, I don't really plan at all. So the books kind of evolve, and, and I think Raker kind of evolves in interesting ways, or hopefully interesting ways, uh, alongside it. But I got to a point where I really wanted to write a thriller I wanted to give it a go and uh, and I, I'd read a lot of thrillers to that point and um, there were a lot of brilliant writers doing brilliant characters who were all police officers or detectives or FBI agents or whatever you know there was a lot of that kind of stuff around there's not a grand tradition in British crime fiction of writing about private investigators really I mean mostly it's about police officers so that was one thing that kind of interested me because I grew up reading American crime fiction the tradition of private investigating is much bigger there Uh, also making a guy a private investigator means that you can sort of bypass some of the rules so he doesn't need to get a warrant to break into someone's house for example (laughs) but Raker was really an effort to create a character who wasn't some sort of superman didn't have the traditional vices that you associate with um, a crime protagonist. So, you know, he wasn't on the booze the whole time. Yeah. He wasn't addicted to cigarettes or drugs or sex or whatever. And yet the challenge I set myself was at the same time trying to make him really, really layered and interesting. I mean, he's smart and intelligent and brave and all those things that you need a protagonist to be. But I think at ground level, he is just kind of like, hopefully, quite an ordinary guy who is put into some quite extraordinary situations. In contrast to that, um, your next object is a Batman comic. Mm. Can you tell us about your love of the comics? On this one, I think it's the the Joker looking through a lens yep. out at us from the front of the of the magazine. Tell us more about it. So uh, this is a copy of uh, The Killing Joke, uh, which is written by Alan Moore. So... Uh, The Killing Joke really was one of the first comic books I ever read. And before that, my granddad used to tell me uh, stories, and I suppose begun my sort of love affair with stories, told me stories about Batman and Robin, uh, based pretty much on the 60s TV show. So it was like this very cartoonish kind of stories. And then I, I, I obviously became quite attached to Batman as a character. And I picked up The Killing Joke and it was just the total opposite of the sort of Batman that my granddad uh, had, had been telling me about. And I absolutely loved it. And I thought it was brilliant. And what I loved about The Killing Joke, and I know what's interesting about The Killing Joke is that actually Alan Moore, I think, has been on record as sort of disowning it uh, as one, you know, he doesn't really like it. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> uh, what I love about The Killing Joke is it really was the first time I'd I'd read, you know, Batman and the Joker in this graphic novel. You realise by the end of it that even though they are on opposite sides of what you might term good and evil or, you know, opposite sides of the battle or whatever it is, they need each other in order to exist, really. That was the first time I'd really thought about what you might traditionally term the goody and the baddie in that way. I mean, the Joker is insane, obviously, you know, but in many ways Batman's insane as well for doing all that he does. And I think it set me up later on down the line for writing 
what you might traditionally term the villains. And, you know, I mean, lots of authors will say the same thing, but villains shouldn't be black and white. Their motivations should sometimes be very complex. And sometimes, actually, when you see the stories behind them, a little part of you understands perhaps why they do what they do uh, and maybe even has empathy for what they do, you know. Yeah. Let's hear another extract from I Am Missing. And this extract will hear part of a different thread in the story. The first time the girls went up into the hills together was two months before Penny turned nine. It took them a while to pluck up the courage, but then their curiosity got the better of them and they crept out of the house after dark when their parents thought the two of them were asleep and they followed one of the trails up to the top. It turned out that Beth wasn't making it up. At the end of one of the routes, there actually was a fence. Penny wasn't good at measuring heights, didn't really understand feet and inches, but it was at least as tall as her stepdad, Jack, maybe taller. But about a minute after they arrived, they heard a weird noise coming from the other side of it, and it was enough to send them running all the way home again. Eventually, though, they went back, and because the second time wasn't as scary as the first, they decided to go a third time, and a fourth, and each time they stayed a little longer, until five minutes became thirty, and thirty became an hour. Every time they went back, they heard and saw a little more. Sometimes they swore they could actually spot something moving out there. The wind would still, clouds would drift apart, and moonlight would blanket the headland like a pale gauze, revealing the sea of long grass that surrounded them, and the fence that marked the boundary between where they were and the marshland beyond it. From the inside of a hideout they'd found, an old concrete pillbox, the movement on the other side of the fence only ever appeared as flickers, as brief flashes, and always way off in the distance, in an area that Jack, and as time went on, pretty much everyone else in the town, referred to as the brink. And that was the thing. They could have made sure that there was something out there, or not, if they'd gone further than the pillbox, if they'd gone up to the fence, or even, in a feat of bravery, over it and on to the other side. Yet, if Penny had become more fearless every time they'd crept out of the house after dark to return here, if all the science books she'd read had argued that there could be nothing in the grass and bogs beyond the fence, no monsters or ghosts or giant animals, the more time that went on, the more often they returned, the more doubts would continue to nag at her. Now, I believe you've had some part to play in the audiobook, Tim. Um, can you tell us more about it? And which, which bits do you read? Well, it's really difficult to talk about <laughs> specific bits of the book because it's sort of game-changer halfway through. But basically, there's, there's kind of three threads to it. There's the Raker thread. There's the thread you, we've just heard an audio uh, sample from, which is about these two girls who live in this this town and this thing called the brink which they become obsessed with which is this area beyond a fence that the adults in town say that they shouldn't go through because it's been landmined and then there's a third thread which is what i read which is only three chapters but um it also it kind of ties into the chapters about the brink i mean i was really pleased to be able to read uh, something from the book uh, and it was really exciting to do it and nerve-wracking actually because you know walking into penguin studios when you had a couple of proper actors doing uh, <laughs> doing the other parts was was quite intimidating but i really enjoyed it and i was i was really um, really chuffed to be asked to do it do you like listening to your audiobooks generally speaking 
you know, when I'm not taking part in them, definitely, yeah, it's <laughs> uh, it's really good. I mean, it's it brings them to life in a way that um, you don't necessarily think about when you're writing them. I mean, obviously, when you're writing them, and also I think because the books are written in first person, a lot of yourself inevitably kind of goes into the book, you know, yeah. goes into the character, and also you're reading the whole thing in your voice so when you hear someone else speaking your words it is very very strange but but really wonderful and uh, and especially when uh, you get a, a really great performance from actors which is what uh, joe and charlotte did on um, i am missing excellent your next object that we have here is an electronic typewriter and i recognize these i write lyrics when i'm making music with my band on an electronic typewriter oh right yes uh, an old brother one which, Did you find that's a better better way of doing it then? Or? I think it, it sort of solidifies things a little bit more and makes them feel more formal and real. And, mm. and therefore, if something doesn't quite ring true, you almost can't bring yourself to type it. Or if it, it comes out wrong in, the, in that black and white, very formal way, then you think... Ah, that's it's either good or it's bad yeah. when it's when it's out there in black and white. Um, could you describe your your particular typewriter to us, please? Yeah, so I couldn't actually find a, a photograph of the actual Olivetti typewriter that I had, but this one here is is pretty close to what I had. And uh, actually, I started out on an old ribbon typewriter. It was one that my uh, mum and dad had in in the loft, and this must have been when I was I don't know ten, eleven, maybe. So a long time ago. Yeah. And yeah, they, they I just became interested in writing stories. I mean, they weren't very good stories, and I didn't necessarily stick at them. But I just began, I suppose, experimenting with words on this old typewriter. And the more I wrote, the more I enjoyed it. The more I think my mum and dad could see that I was really into it. So for my birthday, I think it was my 14th birthday, they bought me this electronic typewriter. And I was the weird kid, I suppose, in my street who got an electronic typewriter <laughs> rather than Transformers or whatever it was at the time. But anyway, I was very grateful for it. And and that was really the starting point, I think. You know, once I got this electronic typewriter, and particularly when I started getting to my mid to late teens and I became, you know, studied English at school and was reading a lot more and understanding a lot more, um, it really became an important part of my life. And uh, obviously, uh, unlike you, I, I do work on a Mac now, but for a long time, the, the electronic typewriter was was what I spent hours on, you know, yeah. and, and I loved that old typewriter and I had it really pretty much up until probably the end of my teens, maybe even early 20s. Uh, and it's somewhere at home in the loft. But yeah, it was a really big part of, I think, who I eventually became, I guess, as a writer. So when you, I know that you worked as a journalist as well. Mm. And did your journalism work in tandem with fiction or how did it pan out for you? Um, not not really, because I was a magazine journalist, a sort of pretend journalist, I suppose. I wrote about um, video games and technology and a bit of film, a bit of TV. So I wasn't on the front line in uh, Bazaar in my flak jacket. But um, I nonetheless loved my career as a journalist. It was brilliant, fun. You know, I was a journalist for many years and then I was a magazine editor. So, And I loved it. It was brilliant. Um, but it didn't really have massive overlap with my writing. Uh, I suppose what journalism does teach you is really good discipline in mm. terms of writing you know because when I became a full-time writer you know one of the temptations is to just sit around watching tv you know uh, waiting for cash in the attic to come on or whatever it is you know so it's journalism taught me that you know you, you you sit down and you write and you try to reach a word count or a goal and then only and only then can you 
you know, retire for the day kind of thing. Yeah. So I work a nine to five day and I tried to hit, I'm a very slow writer. So I tried to hit about 1500 words if I can a day. So I have a very elongated and slightly tedious way of working where I can't move on from one chapter until I've got the last one sort of almost as good as it, I think it can be. And so did it, was there a, a long delay between you finishing your first novel and getting it published? Oh, yeah, yeah. I struggled for uh, 10 years to get published. I got rejected, I think, by everyone in London. So, yeah, a long time. And actually, I struggled to get an agent for a long time. And ironically, I took a couple of years off after my daughter was born. And that really, I think, was the difference between me getting an agent and eventually getting a publishing deal or not, is because I was struggling to get anyone interested in my debut. And I took a couple of years off. And then I came back to the book and really it was like an epiphany to me. You know, I saw these words uh, with a reader's eyes, I think, and an agent's eyes and an editor's eyes. And I realised how terrible they were. Uh, And so I went back and and really reworked my book pretty much from the ground up. uh, And I ended up sending it to the same literary, one of the same literary agents that rejected me the first time around. And this time they took me on. So uh, it was really, you know, that point, it was, it moved quite quickly. But before then, it had been very slow and very disappointing and very dispiriting. Yeah. So would would that be your major tip to um, other writers who are hoping to be published to reassess the work and try and look at it more objectively, perhaps? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think, you know, taking time off is a big part of it. I mean, you, you, you must find that as well as a lyricist. When you're working on something for so long, and, and a piece of music, I imagine, is the same. Oh, like yeah. When you're working on something for so long, you become so snowblind to it, you don't actually know whether it's any good or not by the end of it. And yeah. you almost need that step back, that time away from it, to kind of clear your head and be able to reassess it. Um, so that was definitely the difference, was that I was able to take time away from it a lot of time away from it. And I would advise writers take as much time away from it as possible because I think when you're really struggling to get anyone interested in your book, there is the temptation to just keep on taking it back, keep on reworking it, keep on sending it out and getting on this treadmill of rejection, you know, and that just really is very dispiriting. Just take some time out, you know, a couple of months, two or three months, four months, six months, whatever it is, and just give yourself some time to, to think and clear your head. Well, let's hear one final extract from the audiobook of I Am Missing Now. Unable to come up with anything, I went back to the shot of the woman, sitting on a bench in a sun-dappled Regent's Park. I studied her face, trying to work out who the woman might be, why Russum might be showing Richard her picture, and why Russum kept two identical photographs of her. I looked at the two pictures individually, and then together, and then individually again, and as I did... I found my gaze drifting to the woman's neck, her collar, her shoulders. I stopped. Scooping the phone up off the table, I pinch-zoomed into an area at the top of her left arm. Her blouse was opaque on the chest and shoulders, but at the arms it switched from a silky material to a kind of thick gauze. It was still hard to make out the skin beneath, but I could see the outline of something now under the material of her blouse and poking out, just fractionally, below the hem of the short sleeve. I swiped right, going to the second, identical photograph of the woman. They're not the same. I leaned closer to the screen, swiping back and forth between the two photos. In the first, the woman had a small black mark beneath her blouse, but in the second picture there was no mark. It was gone. The two shots were identical, 
except for a single tiny thing. In one of them, the woman had a tattoo on her arm. In the other, it had been digitally removed. The tattoo was a silhouette of a bird in flight. It was exactly the same as the one Richard Kite had. That was our final extract from the audiobook of I Am Missing. And now it's time for your final object as well. Another one that can't fit in the Penguin Studios today. This is your office. Can we describe the space that you work in, please? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty um, uninspiring in a lot of ways. It's just the the spare room in our house. But what I like about my office is, or actually what I've come uh, to like about my office, is it's the only real place that I can work effectively. Uh, I'm not, for whatever reason, one of these uh, people who can sit at a laptop at the kitchen table and write. I'm not someone who can sit on a train with a laptop and write. I can't go to coffee shops with my headphones and write because I need monasterial silence in order to work. So... Really, my office is the only place that I can write effectively. So it's become a kind of sanctuary to me. You know, I go there and I I sit down and I try to do my nine to five day um, and hope by the end of it, I've done my 1500 words. So I've sort of come to love my office and uh, and find it very um, a, a place where I can concentrate very easily. Can I have a little look at the photograph? I'm going to see if there's anything that catches my eye. Um, Well, immediately I can see there's a (laughs) <laughs> uh, it looks like a Lego figure. Is it a Lego figure? It is, it's yeah. a diver. It's a small... It's, it's, it, as you look at it, you're thinking, this doesn't look like an adult's uh, office. It looks like a small <laughs> child's office. Well, it's, it's a diving Lego figure, but the diver doesn't look like a professional diver because he has uh, an inflatable duck around his midriff. It's actually Batman with an inflatable oh, ring around his middle. Yeah, and he's in amongst... I love cactuses. I, I really love... Uh, or cacti, I should say. Yeah. And yeah, so that's he's sitting on a cacti there. And the, is is that Robocop and Alien? And Predator, yes and it Predator. is. Yeah, I'm a big uh, <laughs> 80s action movie fan. I, I, you know, I grew up at a time when Arnold Schwarzenegger was the coolest guy uh, around, you know. So yeah, I'm a big uh, fan of 80s movies generally, actually. But there was some, particularly in the action genre, there were a lot of great movies back then. And I can see lots of comic books. It's comic books, yeah. Do you have breaks in the day? I know you've got your deadline that you want to meet. Um, but are there times where you just want to switch off in the middle of the of the day? Uh, yeah, I mean, loads of times. That's pretty much all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I try to write as much uh, as I can in the morning. And uh, sometimes I work at night, but I try to... I did my first four... I did four and a half books whilst holding down my day job as a magazine journalist. So I used to work 16-hour days, six days a week pretty much for four and a half years. So I still see my evenings as like lovely time where I get to... Like the idea of just crashing on the sofa and watching a TV box set or something is still amazing to me, you know. (laughs) So I still feel... I still try and keep my evenings uh, free if possible. And I'll always read uh, before bed, you know. That's when my reading time... So I try to read books. I read my comics sometimes. Uh, I just just read generally before bed because I find that's the best time to do it. I can see there's a, a couple of post-it notes on your screen there. Mm. Is that just I need to do the washing up later, or is it, <laughs> or is it plot devices? No, it is actually story-related stuff. I mean, I mentioned to you earlier that I'm not a huge planner. Yeah. I, I don't really plan books. I just start with an idea, and I'll have a vague idea of how it, it kind of ends. But the bits in between kind of evolve as they evolve, because I think that. In my opinion, I think it's very, very hard to get an idea of who characters are and how they behave and how they interact and how they are around other people and the decisions they make unless they're on the page interacting with other people. And when you're putting them in scenarios, that's when you see that they're 
what they're capable of or not capable of. Um, it's very, you know, I have very good friends who who plan out all their novels in like Excel spreadsheets or whatever it is, you know. But I can't foresee how a, a plot is going to evolve or a character is going to uh, be fleshed out from a spreadsheet. So until I get it on the page, I don't really know how the book's going to kind of come together. Uh, which is why it takes me 10 months to write a book. It takes, you know, in comparison to a lot of thriller writers, that's quite slow, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and those post-it notes really are the sort of sum total of my plotting and my planning. Because obviously, as you make things up as you go along, you hit certain points at which you think, actually, I've decided to take this character in this direction. I need to go back and adjust it later. And those are sort of reminders to go back and do that. Yeah. Uh, because you can become obviously very bogged down in like going back and fiddling with stuff. And I try as much as possible to uh, get through to the end before going back and making major changes. That said, like I said to you earlier, I do find it hard to move on from one chapter until I've got it kind of right, uh, which again means that it takes 10 months for me to write a book. Um, I take it there's another David Raker investigation on the way. Yeah, there is. Yeah, that I'm writing it at the moment and uh, I'm in the bad place with it at the moment, which is pretty much 20,000 words into the end. So uh, it's due in in October and um, it's hard at the moment. It's the middle sections of the book I find are actually very, very difficult because, you know, when you set up a book when you're first going on a new book you're like this is great it's a new book I'm really excited about it and that keeps you going for a while and then you start hitting the middle sections of the book and you're like oh it's this book again you know like oh where am I going what am I doing with this <laughs> but when you get to the end you can see the end in sight and you're tying all those loose ends up it's a lot easier but that yeah. middle section is the really hard bit of writing a book the really challenging bit about writing a book and that's where I'm at at the moment and that's why I say I'm in the bad place because I, it's the bit of the process that is probably the least enjoyable part of writing a book, I think. Okay, well, uh, good luck with that. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. This has been the Penguin Podcast with Tim Weaver. Follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see pictures of all the objects we've chatted about today and to see who else will be joining me in the Penguin studio soon. Thanks very much, Tim. Thank you for having me. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio, My Sister's Bones by Nuala Elwood the compelling thriller about the secrets even those closest to us keep, which The Guardian described as rivalling the girl on the train as a compulsive read. If you can't trust your sister, who can you trust? I take a sip of water from the plastic beaker they gave me an hour ago. It is tepid and smells of chemicals, but anything is better than the stench of the canals. I've had the odd bad dream, I reply, wiping my mouth with the back of my hand. Who wouldn't? It's been a rough few weeks. As Shaw continues to write, I stare at my feet, and for a second, I see body parts congealed in mud, like some macabre jigsaw puzzle. She asked me about the nightmares, but where do I start? Do I tell her how I've stood in shallow graves and felt my feet sinking into the earth, my toes drenched in body fluids? Do I tell her about those endless black nights when I have woken up begging for noise, for chatter, for anything but the incessant silence of the dead? No, because if I do, I will only confirm her suspicions. I have to stay focused and stay one step ahead of her or it's all over. 
I rub the peridot for protection as Shaw stops writing and looks up. And would you say these bad dreams have got worse since you've returned to Hearn Bay? I put the beaker back onto the table and sit up in my chair. I have to stop letting my mind wander. I have to be alert, careful. Every word I say here can be used against me. No, they haven't got worse, I say, trying to keep my voice steady. They've just become real. Fans of I Let You Go and The Widow won't be able to put down this haunting debut novel. Available now to download and own from Audible and iTunes.